right, good morning, everyone. I'll just sort of piddle along for a bit as people uh, stream in and all of that. And it seems as though these kleptocracy initiative um, gatherings and events are getting more and more informal in a way because there's sort of an inside crowd that comes and then there are people who add themselves to this, but one recognizes more and more faces. So I just sort of have my coffee up here this morning and whatever, and we'll, we'll go through things. But I've, I've, um, so welcome to Hudson Institute, first of all. And uh, the Kleptocracy Initiative has uh, been here for three and a half years now. And, uh, and we're very happy here. And Hudson is, uh, you know, in the annual report, you'll see a spiel and this, that, and the other. Uh, but what I think distinguishes us from some of the other right, center-right think tanks in Washington is that we are very explicitly for global engagement. Uh, and that separates us certainly from uh, some of our uh, colleague institutions in some ways. Uh, and we also live under the shadow still of the great Herman Kahn, who really built Hudson up uh, in terms of its initial reputation and all. And we are, of course, a much more diversified, somewhat larger, and very Washington-based institution now. Now, uh, I'm Charles Davidson, the executor, executive director of the Kleptocracy Initiative, as in fact most of you know. And um, today is kind of a big deal for us, because this in some ways is maybe the most major report we have yet released in that I would say more work, more man and woman hours went into this than anything else uh, we've yet done. So I wanted to rifle through, and this is going to be very fast, our previous publications. They're all out there, and some of you may have known them, so that you see how we have arrived at uh, where we are now and why we're emphasizing the topic that is uh, uh, of the, the topic today of this particular study. So the first thing we put out was cleaning up Atlantis, how to put a kleptocracy on the road to transparency. So this is, uh, you know, about how do you de-kleptocratize a kleptocracy. It was an official job by Baker McKenzie, the partner Tom Firestone put this together, but with some, uh, some uh, collaboration from colleagues at Baker McKenzie, official job on this for Hudson Institute, which is kind of interesting. The second publication by Oliver Bullo is about the three stages of kleptocracy. You've got to loot, then you've got to stash it somewhere, and then you have to rehabilitate or habilitate, we really should say, your reputation and become a full-fledged, yacht-owning, university-donating, very respectable, expensive, cufflink-wearing member of Western society. We then published The Kleptocracy Curse, Rethinking Containment, which uh, has Ben's name on it and the talent of Ben's pen, and then a lot of research assistant from Belinda Lee, with whom he uh, did today's, the thing we'll be presenting today, and uh, our uh, whole team. But this is something we started with Ben, actually, the summer after the kleptocracy initiative started. We couldn't quite pull it all off, and then we came back to it a year later. And this is really the document, if you're going to look at one thing that sort of summarizes what we think, what we've done, and what our policy recommendations are. Uh, and we, uh, the first thing we start with in terms of our recommendations and where we still are is getting rid of anonymous companies and uh, various ways of um, owning assets anonymously uh, within the West for uh, kleptocrats, to sort of put it in uh, elementary terms. We then published 
weaponizing kleptocracy, Putin's hybrid warfare by Marius Rorinavisius, who's arguably the most eminent journalist, uh, living journalist uh, in Lithuania, certainly of his generation. He's a little younger than me. Um, and it's all about uh, this, this um, well, Putin's hybrid warfare and the corruption export kleptocracy aspect of it going way back. This isn't something new, and it's, it's the history of that going back to the KGB, this, that, and the other. It's a very integrated sort of paper, which has been very well received. Then, something really interesting and really original that you, uh, one, do hasn't, uh, one doesn't see anywhere else, to my knowledge, and it's a very powerful idea, and I think this may be the idea that can really galvanize anti-kleptocracy beyond uh, the journalists and think tanks and practitioners in our government who are all riled up about the kleptocracy issue. This is about how it affects all citizens. And the, um, it's, it's about how we initially called them neo-gulag values, but really how corrosive practices come into our societies when we welcome uh, the money of kleptocrats because they come themselves also and they bring their children, and they have not become freedom-loving, democracy-promotion folks, quite the contrary. And so they bring with them their corrosive norms, culture, into our societies. And this uh, describes this whole idea uh, with all sorts of examples. Obviously, it doesn't mention too many names, but it's a very, very uh, powerful series of ideas. And it, this has interested um, a lot of people in our government have been surprised uh, in terms of the current debates. Then, yesterday, uh, on the Hill, we presented the United States of Anonymity. I, bear, I needn't say more. And it's about, it's by Casey Michelle. Oh, I sh should have mentioned this corrosive practices paper was by the remarkable Ilya Zaslavsky, whom we have worked with on this many things and will, I hope, work with on other things going forward. Then, Casey Michelle, young journalist, trained at Columbia University, uh, was a student of Alex Cooley, who wrote a fantastic book that came out recently on kleptocracy in a small cluster of Eurasian countries. It just came out about six months ago. And Casey traveled uh, at our expense, but only cost a few hundred bucks because traveling within our country is too expensive. It's not like going to international conferences and stuff. And he went to South Dakota and Nevada and uh, uh, Wyoming and places like that. And he, uh, you know, beyond Delaware, Nevada, the sort of usual suspects, and uncovered some interesting things about this whole issue of the United States as the leading secrecy jurisdiction. So this was presented yesterday on the Hill with a marvelous introduction by Senator Whitehouse, which confirms Hudson's bipartisan principles for that matter. Uh, and then today, we are going to present uh, money laundering for 21st century authoritarianism. And this actually reflects what we are going to focus on uh, more than anything at the Kleptocracy Initiative now, which is the West's role in enabling, uh, in enabling kleptocracy, international kleptocracy. What did I just say? Oh, my. Uh, in other words, our role in providing the punch bowl. I like that term punch bowl, but my wife thinks that I've been using it too long. She doesn't think it's so great. Um, but if one thinks of fraternity parties and things like that, uh, it's, it's not really such a bad analogy, and it's a little denigrating. And we do, we, 
we provide the punch bowl for all this. And the other notion of my punch bowl analogy is it's pretty easy to solve this problem if you simply pick up the punch bowl and take it away. I mean, it's everybody wants to make this stuff so terribly complicated. Um, an aside, little parenthesis, there was recently an article in Foreign Affairs by Thorsten Benner, who runs a think tank in Berlin, and it's, a it's called An Era of Authoritarian Influence, and it's a fantastic summary of everything we've done over the last three and a half years, really, uh, and it shows that there are other people on the other side of the pond and, and quite a bit going on on the subject. It's a great synthesis of what's going on. We may be working with Thorsten on on a project going forward. This, this remains to be seen. Uh, OK, now, what about today's paper? So uh, I will introduce Ben and Belinda, but, uh, but just um, also mention how much work went into this. I mean, they interviewed a ton of people, uh, and we had an enormous amount of material that was culled down into, into this paper. Um, and it's a real think tank paper, a lot of, in the sense of a lot of original research um, and uh, a great deal of thought going into the architecture of it, uh, this, that, and the other. Uh, so let me introduce Ben. It's always a pleasure to introduce Ben, and it's very easy because you don't have to sort of fish for qualities or talents or anything like that. If anything, you sort of have to tone things down. Um, and uh, there was a word I wanted to use, actually, at the end of introducing him, but I can't on, on camera. We're streamed live. These become documents uh, of Hudson Institute. You know, it's not a, <clears throat> uh, there, there, there are limits. But anyway, before, uh, Ben is now, I should start with the fact that Ben is now, very recently, uh, got his visa and is an employee of uh, Hudson Institute as of um, now, basically. I mean, just the last. Uh, few days and all of that. And uh, as many of you know, and as you will very much know when he starts speaking, he's from the UK. And when he was 23, he published a book called From um, uh, uh, Fragile Empire and, uh, at age 23. And, and this was after traveling all over the uh, Russia. Uh, and uh, so it was, uh, it was very much a journalistic book, but which then went well beyond journalism. And Ben is one of these rare, interesting people who is fundamentally a great journalist. But then he um, works his way up. He starts with the realities of life, of reportage, works his way up into political thought and into political action, which we will I'll get to in, in just a minute. Um, and uh, you know, this can be contrasted with, say, a political theorist who starts with theory. And I, in my... Uh, role as publisher of the American Interest magazine, I work with a lot of those people, and a very famous one in particular. Then you start with the theory, and you sort of work your way down to some engagement with the real world. And when the real world doesn't cooperate with your theory, it can be very annoying. Uh, so, um, so I have, obviously, as you can see, I have great admiration for, for uh, Ben and his gifts. So before he came to uh, work with us on a sustained basis um, here at Hudson, which was his idea, I should add, we had uh, worked on various things together. I think I initially met him via Bill Browder, who's on uh, my advisory council and was one of the uh, early uh, founders, almost, of the Kleptocracy Initiative, in a sense. And uh, it was with uh, Ben that, and some other people, but Ben uh, primarily that we cooked up these kleptocracy tours in London, which to my great surprise, 
the president of Hudson Institute, my boss here, agreed we would officially co-sponsor with the Henry Jackson Society in London, which is also a serious think tank. Serious think tanks sponsoring klepto tours. Well, okay, great. They're still going on. I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard heard what this was about. But these were buses uh, of journalists, basically, uh, and then members of the British government, a lot of people picked up on this. It got a lot of press coverage going to see the uh, real estate of supposed alleged kleptocrats, the way you sort of go for a Hollywood tour of the stars. And this was so successful it's continued and apparently had some influence on Parliament and Cameron on the passage of certain uh, government measures, to use a general term, in the UK. So that was kind of cool. And then Ben was the brains, as I understand it, behind a film called From Russia with Cash that Channel 4 did in uh, the UK. And we, uh, well, this also had influence, apparently, real political influence. It was arresting. And uh, we invited uh, Ben and the whole team over for a big US premiere of the film at the museum. Uh, which was hugely well attended and which I still hear about. I get feedback about that uh, uh, all, all the time. Um, in terms of getting back to Ben, his recent work, if you want to see his journalism, he, uh, he's had some assignments for the Sunday Times, a fantastic profile of Emmanuel Macron, current president of France, where he traveled around with uh, Macron, and I guess his, his wife was kind of around, so he got to know him a bit. It's a great read. And then more more recently, can I mention the name of the recent one, or is it, it hasn't appeared yet? It's not, yet. So not published, so I shouldn't mention anything about that. Yeah, okay. I almost committed a faux pas. Uh, so, uh, well, that's probably enough on Ben. Uh, Belinda Lee uh, who's uh, over here? Would you stand up, Belinda, just so people know who you are if they want to ask a question later or whatever? Uh, worked uh, a lot with, uh, with Ben on this paper. And um, she even took a little course in uh, anti money laundering, uh, which I think she passes a test for soon, something like that. Uh, and, uh, and Belinda has, um, came to us right out of. Uh, Pomona College, and she was a star student of Mingxing Pei's, the great China expert who was on our advisory council, and um, she is a fabulous researcher, excellent writer. She's pushy in a good way, which you need to be if you're going to be a really good researcher, and she's also our star manager of interns. I need to take lessons from her as to how you manage interns, because she had a whole bevy of them doing stuff. It was with discipline. It was all quite remarkable. And uh, to, to uh, complete Belinda, I'm going to talk for the whole time here. I better shut up. Uh, Belinda is going to law school. She got into her first choice of law school recently. And so she will unfortunately be leaving us in a few months. Now, just a quick word about the respondent, Raymond Baker. Uh, I've known Raymond for 12 years. And Raymond is. Um, Truly, he's old enough now that one doesn't offend him by mentioning that he's an elder statesman. And he truly is one of a handful of elder statesmen of the, shall we say, anti-illicit uh, financial flows movement. And he wrote the first book, or, or the first magazine piece. So we could, the, the first person who brought in one document all the issues surrounding illicit finance together. 
So everything is in there, and it's really, it was really a seminal work. It led to the founding of Global Financial Integrity and to a lot of great things he's done since then. Um, and so the format, Ben is going to present the paper and its ideas, then Raymond will be the respondent. He will also speak from the podium, and then we will all be joined uh, by Brady Olson of the FBI and Gary Kalman, the head of the FACT Coalition, for a discussion. Thank you very much, and sorry for speaking for so long. My apologies. Yep. Well, I'd like to sort of begin, firstly, by, by thanking um, the Hudson Institute and by thanking uh, Charles Davidson for such an incredibly kind uh, introduction. I'm really sort of blushing or sort of purring uh, at this point. And I'd also like to especially thank my co-author uh, in this uh, project, uh, Belinda Lee, who did well over half of the thinking, research, and um, uh, intellectual sort of uh, di dynamism uh, to this report. It may seem unusual that the uh, Hudson Institute is doing such a, a blended research, bringing together ideas of corruption, bringing together journalists, political writers, English, uh, Englishmen, Frenchmen. But I'd just like to say that actually in the Hudson Institute's uh, heritage, this is very much in keeping. And the Hudson Institute, when it was founded by Herman Kahn, was the um, think tank that gave a home to the African-American novelist Ralph Ellison, and was the think tank that brought to uh, Washington the great French liberal uh, Leon Aron, and was uh, a home to sort of futurists and people willing to think the unthinkable and to really sort of smash through a lot of the tired ideas of uh, yesterday. When we began this project, um, shortly after Russia's annexation of Crimea, our sort of motivating idea was that there was a persisting look towards Russia and towards China from the Cold War, which would count their tanks, count their missiles, count their industrial production and pig iron production, but wouldn't think and conceptualize strategically about their money and about financial flows. There was a legacy in the think tank community and in the strategic community of looking at America's uh, sort of hot, uh, America's foes and sometimes partners as if they were not major exporters of financial flows and as if they had not been able to weaponize and develop strategic tools of their own with their money. And our project has since then been bringing together um, thinkers from across Europe and the United States and across very different disciplines, from the law, from finance, from investigative journalism and from activism, to work out how to think that through. When our project began, our initial idea was to follow that money. And we saw these financial flows leaving Russia, leaving China, leaving Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, the list can go on, and finding themselves embedded in the Western financial system. And our initial idea was that there is significant leverage not used by the United States and the European Union and, uh, uh, need I say, dare I say, Japan, to, um, that could potentially be impacted on these ruling classes. And that idea at the time, which would have seemed quite radical, is now very much 
uh, part of the new playbook. And we've seen banking sanctions and asset freezes placed on the elites of Russia, Syria, Iran, Venezuela, and North Korea to further American interests over the last two years. Since then, with uh, the kleptocracy uh, curse report that we worked together on, we then moved into investigating that financial system itself. And our research has begun to show that globalization in its current format, rather than being a world that uniquely favors NGOs and Democrats and sort of emerging opposition dissidents and emerging middle classes and a certain view of the Americanization and democratization of the world was, in fact, a very friendly environment to the kleptocratic elites of hostile, authoritarian, and uh, more often than not, dictatorial uh, powers at play in world politics because the contemporary financial system offered to them access to the very best lawyers, the very best bankers, the very best PR artists and uh, consultants of the Western system, allowing these elites to be repressive at home and enjoy the benefits of an authoritarian system in the countries they ruled, but also play with the tools um, nor normally and previously only available to democratic uh, elites in the West. As a program, we became fascinated by those around and helping the kleptocrats, by the financiers, by the bankers, by the lawyers, by, the, by these consultants. And we began to try and develop a conceptual framework for looking at them. Uh, Charles came up with the term enablers, the enablers of kleptocracy, the enablers of dirty finance. And when we began this project, we decided we would begin, in keeping with uh, our fascination with financial flows, with looking at the money. How much money is laundered in the United States uh, every year? Well, that number might shock you, because the number is 300 billion is laundered annually in the United States. Now, 300 billion is a, is a big, big number. It's very hard to actually even conceive of it. I can't imagine $300 billion uh, lined up, in, um, lined up in, in a line on the road. I can't uh, imagine that uh, easily. So let me give you a few more figures to illustrate just how enormous that is. The amount of money laundered in the United States uh, a year is the equivalent to 2% of American GDP. Now we can begin to imagine 2% of American annual output is laundered money, is the proceeds of illegal finance being laundered in this country. Now, what industry would that be comparable to? Well, the industry um, that our, our research shows it's comparable to is the US mining industry. So the amount of money laundered in the United States a year is, is equivalent to the amount of value of the US mining industry a year. So I think that should illustrate just what a gigantic phenomenon money laundering is uh, in this um, country. We then continued our research from that point. We went to speak to uh, the FBI. We went to speak to the leading specialists. We went to speak to law enforcement. We went to speak to the Department of uh, Homeland uh, Security. We went to speak to uh, members of Congress and uh, people uh, investigating uh, such, uh, such matters. And the, the evidence that came out 
is uh, should really worry uh, Americans because, according to the uh, World Bank, and according to a comprehensive analysis of um, money laundering uh, cases, this country is the global kleptocrat's favorite location to launder money. Much more popular than Panama, much more popular than um, Switzerland. The United States is the number one location to launder money. It's, again, because there is still a lack of think, an inability to think about power as something more than tanks and a game of risk and missiles in perfect order, it ta often takes a while for people to realize that money laundering is a crucial part of the power of hostile actors to the United States. So just let me explain with a metaphor that we were told by one of America's sort of leading uh, police uh, authorities um, investigating this matter. If you're a criminal, you know how to be a criminal. It's not, it's not a problem. If you're a successful criminal, you know how to pick ladies' pockets, you know how to sell drugs on the street corner, you know how to loot your country. You're the president of a former Soviet republic. It's not a problem for you to uh, order for the healthcare budget to be, uh, to be under your control. Your problem as a criminal, as a kleptocrat, as the head or one of the leaders of the Sonola drug cartel is how do I launder that money? How do I take this dirty black cash and convert it as quickly as possible into clean white cash that I can then turn into new sources of power and activity. So your problem is how do I launder my money as quickly and as easily as possible. And the easier it is for you to launder your money, the more powerful you become. The quicker a, uh, a post-Soviet uh, kleptocrat can move his cash out of uh, the territory he controls and secure it in the West and launder it, the more agents of influence he can bring into his orbit in the United States, in Britain, in the European Union. The quicker what the, the bosses of the Juarez cartel can launder their money, the more uh, armed men, the more corrupt members of local parliaments and governments they can bring into their orbit. So, the, so there is a direct line, there is a mathematical formula, you can call it um, the kleptocracy uh, rule. The easier it is to launder money, the more powerful in, uh, criminals and kleptocrats will become. So our research then took us into, into investigating what systems does the United States have in place to defend itself against money laundering? What do the, what, what do the defenses of this country uh, look like? And we, this is what our report concentrates on, and we came up, we, we have found some, uh, a, a shocking uh, lack of preparedness, a lack of sophistication, and a lack of robust defenses uh, in this country against uh, this, uh, this problem. The, the United States uh, anti-money laundering uh, system which only got going in the late 20th century, is in some ways uh, the world's most effective 20th century anti-money laundering system. It's designed to bust 1980s uh, flare-wearing cocaine cowboys in Miami with suitcases of cash. 
it's not designed to deal with iPhone-enabled and digitally banking uh, Russian or Chinese uh, uh, Russian or Chinese uh, kleptocrats. Now, what are the? Why is that? What are the flaws of the anti-money laundering system? Now, the first flaw that we found, which is by far and away the most meaningful, is that the anti-money laundering system uh, does not extend meaningfully to the financial services beyond banks that act as gatekeepers to the financial system. It does not meaningfully extend to lawyers. It does not meaningfully extend to incorporation agents or those involved in real estate transactions. Now, at first, you might go, well, uh, finance about banks, isn't it? Money goes through banks. But that's quite a sort of, dare I say, a 20th century way of looking at financial flows. Because in the current economic environment, in the 21st uh, century, lawyers and corporation agents and uh, those involved in real estate, and, uh, real estate uh, transactions are handling significant financial flows and operate in some ways as an alternative non-bank-centered financial uh, services system. But they are not meaningfully covered by the American anti-money laundering system. So we have in this country a lopsided system where American blue chip banks, where Wall Street, as it's sometimes uh, uh, known, even though it's much, much bigger than uh, Wall Street, um, are hiring very large compliance departments, very are engaged in major um, AML uh, form, uh, form filling and uh, annually, the sector is paying the equivalent uh, in its own, for its own de uh, compliance departments of the budget of the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security combined. But just down the road, just one click away, just one movement away in the offices of lawyers and corporation agents or real estate, um, those involved in real estate transaction, nothing meaningfully is taking place. We have this very, very lopsided system. We have a bureaucratic wall, and then we have nothing when it comes to dealing with uh, the defenses uh, of America's AML uh, system. The second major flaw that we discovered in our research is that the United States operates as a factory for anonymous shell companies. And that the United States is pumping out annually so um, effectively pieces of, pieces of paper, or not even uh, pieces of paper, digital imprints, which have the rights of uh, corporations and the, and the ability to navigate of uh, corporations and offer complete anonymity to their owners and those that will put stash uh, money uh, in them. These are not corporations or companies in a meaningful way. They produce no goods and services. But the better way to understand them are anonymity devices being produced uh, by the American incorporation sector. Now, in all of our investigations, we found that the number one tool, obviously, that a money launderer is uh, looking for is the ability to make himself uh, anonymous. And as long as the US system is a factory for anonymous uh, shell companies, um, it is producing devices that can simply walk through the um, US anti-money laundering uh, system. Uh, the equivalent of the invisibility cloaks of Harry Potter is a way that uh, one of our interviewees uh, put it. Now, what is going on in 
the software of the, of the anti-money laundering system that exists. Anyone who's worked in finance will know that you are supposed to file a suspicious activity report when uh, a sort of uh, suspicious individual with suspicious cash that you suspect of being a money launderer wanders into your bank or wanders into your um, uh, client department looking to place uh, money. Now, the SARS, these operate in the wrong way around. Uh, an individual is obliged to file a SAR, but once he's done that, it is simply logged on a system. It's just a log. It's not a preventative. It's not a preventative system. And only when, via another mechanism, a crime has been reported, is that system usually and typically consulted. And now, the final major flaw we found with the U.S. anti-money laundering uh, system is capacity and conviction uh, rates. Now. We're talking about 300 billion a year. We're not talking about nothing. We're talking about an industry the size and uh, an industry of enablers of anti-money uh, of money laundering who are producing output equivalent to the U.S. mining industry, but we're only talking about 2,000 convictions a year. We're, we're talking about a less than five percent conviction rate. Now, just to put that in perspective, in case the 300 billion wasn't perspective enough. Uh, 55,000 um, 55, suspicious activity reports are filed a day. But only 2,000 uh, individuals are being convicted uh, a year. Now, our, our research then took us further into trying to work out what the loopholes were in the existing uh, financial system that were offered by uh, enablers. And uh, on our tr visits to Miami and to New York and to uh, London, we found that lawyers and uh, bankers and those engaged in corporation agents and uh, real estate transactions were often knowingly offering these, uh, uh, these services. Now, one of the first loopholes we found was that it's very easy to, cir to circumvent what are known as politically exposed persons regulations. It's very narrowly defined. An individual who's a politically exposed person with extra, uh, uh, extra regulation placed on them. Often family members are used instead. We found the same problem of uh, anonymous companies being able to uh, stand in instead. We found that Lawyers' accounts, IOLTA accounts, are uh, a way, a sort of backdoor into the US financial um, system, and that money can be placed in them by foreign actors and potentially foreign kleptocrats uh, without uh, meaningful, uh, uh, without meaningful uh, checks. And this is a, a world which is of over 400 billion, um, uh, where over $400 billion uh, is sort of circulating. Uh, uh, a year. And to come back to what may be an old chestnut to uh, visitors of the Hudson Institute, we found that the persistent lack to close the loopholes that permit one to buy property anonymously uh, in this country uh, continues to turn, despite effort made by uh, FinCEN with its geographical targeting orders, 
continues to turn uh, luxury real estate in America's most exclusive and often not uh, cities uh, into the bitcoins of uh, kleptocrats. Now, what, what should be done about such a major problem? Now, what should be, where should one, how should one go about fixing this? So, at first, we brainstormed about, would it be a standalone piece of legislation? Could we develop a piece of super legislation that would fix uh, the problem? But um, studying from political campaigns of the past, we have found that these tend not to be successful without a meaningful and long-term effort to educate and to, to use an expression favored by uh, Charles, to infect um, uh, sort of lawmakers and the sort of Washington uh, sort of uh, uh, the Washington political framework, so to speak, with uh, viral ideas. One idea that we uh, have, which we think could be a great way to push policy going forward, is that right now in uh, Congress, you, we have a series of overlapping uh, initiatives uh, inspired by the growing power of drug cartels and the uh, growing menace of deaths caused by them in the United States and the fear of uh, Russian interference and weaponized dirty money in this country to, uh, to uh, remove the capacity to create anonymous companies, to create registers of who actually owns them. Instead of having the, whilst these are all fantastic, we think that a way to go beyond that would be to establish a joint special committee of Congress on kleptocracy to examine the issue in breadth and in depth and to work out, uh, sitting regularly over years, how to create a real 21st century uh, anti-money laundering system. We believe this should be twinned with a kleptocracy study group in the same way that you have a Europe study group or you have a Japan study group where um, members of uh, Congress can engage in close and regular and structured cooperation with America's allies like Britain or Ukraine uh, or France to work out how these countries are making strides in defending themselves uh, against, uh, klepto uh, against uh, kleptocracy. Just to, to conclude, uh, I'd like to bring back this issue of conceptualizing defenses. And there is such an enormous conversation here. There is such enormous investment and such an enormous um, desire to protect the country's borders. This could be walls. It could be, uh, it could be extraordinary air forces, it could be the long-term uh, dream of uh, ardently pursued of a missile defense shield. But in the 21st century, in the internet age, in a financialized age, America also needs to realize that defenses have to exist within the financial system against dirty money and against uh, wep especially weaponized dirty uh, dirty money and financial flows from hostile uh, actors. And just before I uh, uh, open the, the sort of pa I pass the floor to uh, Raymond uh, uh, Baker, there's one final point here about money and its transformative power. So at the beginning of this century, it was believed that globalization 
was a pretty one-way street, that America and the European Union would export cash, export money, export ideas, and that would transform uh, the political elites of uh, Russia and China and India and um, Paraguay into becoming more Western. But what we've, what we've noticed, whereas there, there is undeniably a bit of that, there's also another, also flows coming the other way that can, that can transform uh, elites that become their enablers into looking more like the, uh, uh, the exporters of uh, kleptocratic uh, capital. So uh, thank you very much for, for coming, and um, uh, I hope you enjoy uh, reading the, the report. Thank you, Charles, and thank you, uh, Ben. Um, I'm delighted to be here this morning with you, participating in the Kleptocracy Initiative's uh, uh, launch of this report. As I was walking over here this morning, I was recalling a breakfast that Charles and I had uh, several years ago, at the conclusion of which Charles said, Raymond, you are the, uh, the, the most straightforward person that I know. And I thought to myself, that's a, that's a nice comment. Until I thought about it two or three days later, and I realized that what Charles really meant was, Raymond, you are the least diplomatic person I know. <laughs> I will uh, try to be on my uh, best behavior uh, uh, today. Let me be um, slightly uh, autobiographical. In 1990, I started asking myself, a question. How do you solve a problem that no one wants to solve? And that problem that I was thinking about was dirty money flowing around the world, causing, um, uh, producing poverty and insecurity for uh, billions of people. My own book, um, when it was published in 2005, I had no idea at that moment whether there would be a single other person in the world that would agree with what I uh, was saying. Fortunately, many people uh, agreed, and, um, and now we have uh, um, a great many people focused on this massive, uh, multifaceted uh, global problem. Uh, ben and Belinda, this is an excellent uh, piece of work. Thank you so much. Uh, um, uh, for this. What you're doing in this paper and what the Kleptocracy Initiative is doing is taking this whole issue of um, illicit money and focusing it on security concerns. As long as this issue was primarily focused on corruption and drugs and uh, trafficking and so forth, the, uh, the national security community could say, oh, that's the soft side of uh, international affairs. We in the national security community, we deal on the hard stuff, military matters and diplomacy and foreign policy. Kleptocracy Initiative is saying, no, the soft side, as you call it, is in fact making it impossible for you to achieve what you're trying to achieve in what you call uh, the hard side, achieving peace and security. Illicit money is a key component 
in our inability to achieve many of our diplomatic and foreign policy and military objectives. I want to make three fundamental points, and then I'll go on and talk about uh, a few aspects of the, um, uh, the report itself. First of all, as many of you know, the scope of the shadow financial system that moves illicit money comprises tax havens, secrecy jurisdictions, disguised corporations, anonymous trust accounts, um, uh, fake uh, foundations, uh, money laundering techniques of various uh, uh, iterations. Trade misinvoicing is, in our analysis, the mechanism that moves more illicit money across borders than any other mechanism. And then there's the structure of lawyers and bankers and accountants that operate the system. And then finally, there are holes quite intentionally left in our laws to facilitate the movement of money out of other countries across uh, borders in, uh, through the shadow financial system and ultimately into our own economies. The development of this system got underway in earnest in the 1960s. And over the decades, this same system has been stepped into and utilized by drug dealers and other criminals and uh, uh, corrupt government officials and terrorists. And now, as we are focusing on uh, kleptocrats, They've been around in the developing countries for some time, but not until it uh, began to affect the larger powers uh, have we focused um, on that. Every element of the shadow financial system was created by us. This is not something done to us. This is something done by us. We continue to hold on to the shadow financial system because we use it. We use the system to move uh, aspects of our money, particularly corporations moving um, revenues and profits across borders in ways that avoid uh, um, uh, monitoring and avoid payment of taxes or the avoidance of taxes. Every multinational, multi-billion dollar, multi-product corporation that I know of uses aspects of the shadow financial system uh, in uh, some parts of their operations. The key fallacy in global anti-money laundering efforts is the idea that we can hold on to our use of this system while at the same time making other people give up their use of the system. This is not possible. We have to recognize that we are dealing with a systemic problem that requires a systemic solution. Second point um, that I want to make is, in fact, illustrative of uh, the first point. My favorite organization in Washington to criticize is the Drug Enforcement Administration. Created in 1973, now in business for 44 years, the Drug Enforcement Administration has not succeeded in curtailing the supply of drugs or raising the price of drugs. Don't get me wrong, I have enormous respect for agents who put, them, put themselves on the line going after uh, drugs and cartels. 
What I don't respect is the mandate that they are given, which is to concentrate on the product rather than the money. United Nations Office of Drugs and Crimes estimates that globally some 40% of hard drugs are interdicted somewhere between production and consumption. 40% uh, interdiction of, of those drugs. They also estimate that less than 1% of drug proceeds are ever recovered. 40% of the product is, is stopped, less than 1% of the drug money is ever received. Drug kingpins can afford to lose 50% or 60% or 70% or more of the product if they can keep more than 99% uh, of the money. <sighs> DEA, in my judgment, is making a fundamental mistake in concentrating on the product rather than on uh, the money. We had an ex-DEA uh, agent in our office not long ago, and we asked him, what percentage of the agents are focused on the product and what percentage are focused on the money? He said 90% are focused on uh, uh, the product. Um, as long as that is the case, it is my view that we will continue to um, uh, be unsuccessful uh, in uh, trying to solve the drug problem. Uh, the fact that we have not curtailed the supply of drugs and raised the price of drugs over a period of 44 years is in, my is, in my judgment, the definition of failure. I have asked in talks I've given um, at various places around the world, how do you curtail the supply of something that is in endless supply? How do you do that? Drugs are in endless supply. The answer is you don't focus on the supply, you focus on the money. This is what Louise Shelley said here a couple of weeks ago, focus on the, the money. Third point I want to make is dismantling the shadow financial system is a matter of political will. This is not rocket science. I make this point because a lot of people will say the opposite. A lot of people will say, oh, this is terribly difficult stuff. You don't understand how technically complicated it is to do this. I disagree with that. And let me give you an example of what I'm uh, talking about. Shell banks. Shell banks used to be included in that recitation of elements of the shadow financial system that I talked about. But I don't include it any longer. Because in the USA Patriot Act, shell banks were taken off the table just like that. The USA Patriot Act says it is illegal for any US financial institution to receive money from a foreign shell bank. It goes on to say it is illegal for any other financial institution in the world to send money to the United States that it has received from a foreign shell bank. It makes it clear that this also pertains to wire transfers that might touch a correspondent banking account in New York City before flitting off somewhere else. Immediately when the, when the uh, Patriot Act uh, was, was put into force, shell banks began to dry up around the world. There's still a handful uh, uh, left. Um, in uh, Europe and Asia, but basically I don't include shell banks any longer in, um, uh, as a significant factor in the shadow uh, financial system. Um, this was accomplished with political will by some very 
uh, key senators, and there was no tortured law enforcement process that was, uh, that was gone through. In the same way, every element of the shadow financial system can be curtailed if we have the political will uh, to do so. So, three fundamental points. We created the shadow financial system. It is severely harming us in a multitude of ways. Uh, dismantling this system is a matter of political will. Now let me comment on two or three aspects uh, within the report uh, itself. Um, ben and Belinda, you quote the Treasury Department estimating that $300 billion a year is laundered through the United States. 20 years ago, I asked the director of FinCEN what was his estimate. At that time, he said $250 billion. I then asked him, how much of that money do we capture, do we get our hands on? He said, oh, in a good year, we might get our hands on $250 million. I did a quick calculation. 99.9% .9 of the laundered money gets into the United States. 0.1% do we ever get our hands on. In other words, our anti-money laundering failure uh, efforts are within a single decimate place of being totally uh, ineffective. Um, at a point in your report, you talk about plausible deniability. I have asked compliance officers in many banks in the United States and in other banks around the world, um, what's the purpose of your anti-money laundering uh, programs and efforts? And if you get their confidence or get a drink or two in them, uh, I have found many of them will admit this is about plausible deniability. This is about being able to say when, found, when found to have laundered money in your institution. This is about saying we've got good systems in place. Uh, this transaction got through us. We'll strengthen our procedures uh, going forward. We'll do better next time. And then they'll go right back to doing uh, the same thing they've been doing. Plausible deniability is a is 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 the way that we are operating um, um, our anti-money laundering uh, efforts. Um, the next point I want to refer to in the uh, report itself, you have raised the question of outside verification um, of beneficial ownership of uh, companies and bank accounts. I don't think we've yet done enough uh, to require banks uh, to go the extra mile in uh, accomplishing identification of beneficial uh, ownership. Um, if I was a uh, bank president, I would have a letter sent out to all of my account holders saying you've got six months to tell me who are the natural persons owning this down to whatever percentage level I choose, and I might choose 5% or 2% or, or whatever, um, and the people that are authorized to operate the account. If we don't have this information in six months, we will freeze the account. Furthermore, be advised that if we find in the future that the information we have been given is wrong, we will likewise freeze the account. The effect of that will be people who do not want to identify the beneficial ownership of their accounts will take their money elsewhere, which is exactly what I want them to do. I want them to take it out of my bank, go someplace else uh, with it. We haven't, uh, we haven't gone that far yet.
in requiring uh, uh, such efforts of uh, uh, banks. Um, um, another point, I would um, hope that in your ongoing work on this issue, um, there would be um, a considerable amount of emphasis on the Qualified Intermediary Program. The QI program was set up uh, to, um, uh, to enable foreign banks to vet money before it came to uh, uh, the United States. Um, there are now, the last I read, some 7,000 banks that are uh, qualified under the, uh, uh, the QI program. Um, I think it's quite clear that many of those banks do not do a good job of betting the money that, uh, uh, that they are sending to the United States uh, uh, for deposit. Um, I have always regarded the QI program as it was uh, uh, in its early stages the way that it was operated, it was basically the legalization of, of laundered money coming into the United States. We washed our hands of the vetting of it. We depended on somebody uh, else. Um, final point that I want to make is the quote that you have toward the end of the report. We're dealing with a chronic lack of general awareness about the issue and how it connects to national security. Making this connection is the major challenge for uh, the kleptocracy initiative. Superb work. Congratulations. We'll bring up our panel now. So everyone to the uh, stage, thank you. And um, All right, and as moderator, I will say very little after my overly long introduction. So we um, uh, we have uh, 26 minutes left. So uh, Brady Olson of the FBI and uh, Gary Kalman on the end, who is the executive director of the FACT Coalition. Did I get your title right? Uh, are going to um, say what they have to say for not about five minutes or less or a little more, but and then we'll have a little bit of time for a discussion. Brady, do you want to pick it up? Certainly. Um, one of the things that strikes me about some of the comments that were already made was uh, some of the connection to national security when, when this comes in. And there's already been some discussion that a lot of this is enabling kleptocracy or enabling kleptocrats to uh, conduct authoritarianism in their countries and things like that. But where I come in and I believe why I'm here is uh, to sort of help make that connection to national security, like why it's important to us and how it's enabling threats to national security, as Mr. Baker was talking about, that it goes beyond the hard power national security into, um, well, we don't care about the money laundering because that's not really affecting national security, but. I believe it's the, the underlying thing that is enabling threats to our national security in the United States. One of the first points I'd like to say is that beyond just a me methodology of sheltering or obscuring the financial resources of kleptocrats or, or other criminal elements uh, transnationally, I think uh, one of the important things is it's, it is an enabler to the threats here in the United States. And uh, for instance, one of the most um, uh, pertinent examples recently is Russia's use of informational warfare. 
um, as you've all seen in the news multiple times, such as the ad buys for Twitter and Facebook and that sort of thing, and how that's um, been enabled through uh, illicit cash flows into the United States and, and the purchases of those ad buys. Um, so for the FBI, one of the difficult things, uh, speaking from um, Mr. Baker's comment about how the DEA's focus has always been curtailing the product rather than going after the money. Well, in this situation for the FBI, uh, it brings the challenge home to us that we, we can't curtail the product. The product is information, and the FBI shouldn't uh, be in the business of throttling or censoring the Internet or, or freedom of speech. A lot of this is, is sort of a viral nature where it starts from a bad actor, but then this is everyday American citizens that catch on to it and it goes viral. So we, we can't curtail that product. Um, that would, in and of itself, be authoritarianism, and that's not the FBI's place and shouldn't be our place. Uh, so where we would come in is on the attribution of the problem. Like we need to show uh, who's behind it and that sort of thing. So for us, the only, the only method, the only way to go after it is to show the financial connections. Um, so it really, it really brings the importance of this home for us uh, as the FBI. And um, la last thing I want to talk about on that, on that note is that <clears throat> it, it's important for us to also increase media literacy uh, in general. And, and there's, there's also the, the, the misunderstanding and, and, and a fallacy that, <clears throat> that the Internet uh, the, the, the actors behind this are, are, you know, organic to the United States and there's not, the, the way that Russia views it is in, in this hybrid warfare, like Mr. Zaslavsky's piece that, that um, you guys published, in that Russia views the battlefield as a hybrid battlefield uh, across all methods, hard power, soft power, um, foreign influence, any, anything like that is, is all the way it's seen. Uh, but for us to see it from the United States perspective that uh, you know, it's all about counting tanks and missiles and things like that, and and uh, we don't we don't need to worry about the the money, and it doesn't affect national security, but but it does, and and some of the recent problems have really brought that to light. Um, so I I, I appreciate uh, being here, and I, I think uh, uh, it's a really good uh, topic. Great, um, a few short brief comments, and then uh, get to questions, but. I uh, first do want to thank the Hudson Institute for having this and for the work that they've put into this issue. Uh, it has truly elevated the issue in ways that we did not imagine several years ago. Um, in fact, it just uh, I'm honored to be on this panel. Uh, you know, Raymond put out his book 2005. You said uh, the first bill on beneficial ownership was introduced in 2006. Um, and so the folks uh, that are here and talking about this issue. Uh, have done a lot of the work in uncovering and making sure that people understand uh, the depth and uh, the issues uh, that are very serious that we're dealing with. So first, just a big thanks to that. Um, I do want to say that, uh, just to agree in, uh, with my colleagues here, that it should be about following the money. There are very few, if any, criminals that do it because they philosophically believe in the crime. I don't think that there's drug dealers peddling drugs because they philosophically believe everybody should have drugs. It is about the money, and so let's focus on what is the motivation and go after the motivation. And so following the money and reorganizing ourselves to do that, I think, is the way in which we begin to make any serious progress on this issue. Um, the other thing I wanted to pick up on was this isn't complicated. You know, I've uh, been doing a lot of work um, 
on financial issues for many, many years. Um, and every issue, uh, whether you're in the, you know, protecting consumers around financial issues or uh, larger issues around global finance, it's always complicated. The people who don't want you to make progress are going to talk about, you know, that's all cute and nice what you're saying, but you really don't understand. Those of us that are in the business, we're the only ones that understand. We're the only ones that can solve the problem, and yet the problem does not get solved. Um, we have been focused in the FACT Coalition uh, on pushing a bill to get beneficial ownership information collected, uh, make it available to law enforcement and those in the financial services community that we uh, empower and ask to uh, deal with the money laundering issue. Um, it is one step. We understand it's not the be-all and end-all step, but we believe it is a foundational step uh, before we can move on to other issues. It, it, we have been told numerous times that the bill that we are promoting is very complex. There is no way to know who owns a company. And it would be a significant burden, and I kid you not, that there are multiple uh, trade groups in, the, in this town that have sent pleading letters to Congress, don't do this, because putting someone's name and address on a piece of paper is so burdensome, it is going to reduce capital formation in this country and uh, kill jobs. We disagree. The last thing I would say is um, that we need to make sure that we get this right. Uh, I think uh, Raymond is right to say that we create some of these laws in their either uh, purposefully have loopholes or unexpected loopholes. Uh, I'm not going to uh, assign uh, motive to people right now, but the, the issue is that we need to get this right. Um, and so let me give two quick, two quick things. One is uh, we are battling whether or not and how you define beneficial owner. You would think that that would be a simple thing. It's the person who controls the company. Uh, that apparently, that phrase, control uh, the company, is so confusing that no one knows how to deal with it, and we've gotten pushback on that. And yet, if you take that out, then you end up with a situation which was uncovered by the Panama Papers last year, where they allowed people who weren't ultimately in control to sign the papers, and so you had a, an employee of Mossack Fonseca, the law firm in Panama, where one employee, one woman, was the owner, director, manager, whatever the form required, for 20,000 companies. Now, either she's the most efficient person in the world, or there's something nefarious going on behind that. Last thing I'm going to say is uh, the gatekeepers. And this is where the report, I think, really is important to be pointing out that we need to take a closer look at the gatekeepers who are allowing the money into the system. And we've been going back and forth with a number in the Bar Association and lawyer uh, groups that represent lawyers uh, saying, you know, they have their own guidelines, they have their standards, and that should be good enough. We don't need laws coming in. Our lawyers know what to do, and they're monitoring the system. Two things I would say on that. One is that because they're voluntary, it is questionable about how effective they can be. And then the evidence would suggest that while even if those are good faith efforts, and I will give our friends in the legal community a benefit of a doubt on this, that that was a good faith effort to come up. It's very comprehensive, I would say. And if you look at it on its face, it looks good. Sadly, however, it has failed. And there's, uh, 
two things I would say. One is Global Witness, one of the one of our coalition partners, did um, uh, went on a sort of undercover investigation, and they went into 13 random law firms in the United States. Twelve of the 13 law firms that they went in, having someone pose as a corrupt foreign official, basically representing a corrupt foreign official, where they want to move money into the United States, clearly sketchy. Twelve out of the 13 said, oh, here's how I would do it, and they would use anonymous shell companies. One lawyer said, this is not for me. That does not, now that's not a full representative sample, I understand, but it doesn't bode well for the profession. The other thing is that there were uh, tip picking up on the World Bank saying that we are the place to be if you're a kleptocrat. The reason is that it's the easiest place in the world, according to a study by UT Austin professors and BYU professors, to set up an anonymous shell company. They sent out thousands, uh, tens of thousands of uh, notices around the world and found that the United States is the easiest place to set up an anonymous shell company and move dirty money into it. There was one lawyer in Florida, and I point this out not because it's defining, but I thought it was illustrative of the rest of the report, who literally wrote back to the professors and said, this is clearly dirty money. It could even be terror financing. I won't touch it for less than 5000 a month. <laughs> so... I'll end on that note. Um, happy to do questions, but clearly we need to make some changes uh, and happy to be part of this group that has been doing such great work. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Gary, thank you. Brittany. Well, I think this was, a, I think, a very interesting uh, panel. We've got very uh, di different uh, pieces and um, uh, constituents here. Um, yeah, did you, final yeah point, a, a final point from Ben, and then we'll move to yeah. Q&A since we don't have a lot uh, of Just time. one final point yeah. about like conceptualizing the, the enemy and about conceptualizing the sort of, uh, sort of field of uh, uh, combat. I think there's like a very restricted and outdated 20th century view of imagining the sort of field of combat as uniquely being... Sorry? They're eager to ask oh, questions. I mean, there's a, there's a very outdated... Um, sort of view of imagining the field of combat as uniquely being a military battlefield or uniquely being a propaganda uh, uh, battlefield. And on those terrains, the enormous size and existing military infrastructure and defensive infrastructure of the United States can be, uh, can be deployed to massive advantage against uh, Russia or Turkey or so on. But if you allow, if you have no defenses in the financial system and you allow kleptocrats to simply walk in to your financial system, which means they can walk into your political system, you create a field you, you are now a, a new field of combat to emerge. And if, the few, if you have created a situation where, uh, kleptocrats can f where foreign kleptocrats can simply fight American oligarchs, it nullifies, in Washington, it nullifies the, uh, the amazing strategic advantage of having all those existing scientific uh, and military defenses. I think that's, a, that's an absolutely key point. Thank you. A beautiful way to end our... Uh, our uh formal presentation of this all. And uh, I might just say, this will truly be short a sentence or two, that Raymond Baker, whom we have with us, is a uh, graduate of Harvard Business School and was the teaching assistant to arguably the most prestigious and influential professor in the history of Harvard Business School. 
So when one thinks of these issues as coming from different elements of our citizenry going against this stuff, you know, this isn't the lefty NGO world, some kid who's never had a real job who you know, thinks they can uh, improve the world with, the, with their, the depth of their wisdom. This is coming from a very, very different uh, place in, in our society. So the gentleman all the way on the end, please, first, and then we'll go to the, to the uh, enthusiastic man in the blue tie. <laughs> Uh, Ian Talley, Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, two questions. One, uh, on beneficial ownership, why would you restrict it to only law enforcement and banks when you can utilize uh, the whole, uh, it's kind of like saying, let's have one mainframe computer, computer rather than use cloud computing uh, to effectively uh, uh, use the entire system to, uh, to uh, process uh, beneficial ownership uh, transactions. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying? Very um, much so. Uh, so uh, I think of C4ADS uh, pointing out um, uh, interactions with North China and North Korea um, that uh, the government hadn't been able to to process. Uh, I think of Bellingcat uh, being able to process public access information about uh, where uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, positions were in Ukraine, etc., uh, uh, etc., so secondly, um, in dealing with this concept of uh, um, the fighting an old fight, uh, an old, uh, are we not uh, missing out of this discussion uh, the uh, VC, uh, virtual currency, which would uh, in the coding be able to uh, trace back all of the beneficial owners if one is to be able to uh, proactively get a hold, a hold ahead of the sort of regulatory question about uh, who holds the key uh, to uh, to the VC. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yep, we got it. Okay, who wants to? Yeah. So uh, to answer the first question, uh, in a word, um, politics. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, my coalition has pushed for actually public registries, which is not uh, unprecedented. In fact, uh, the UK now has a registry of beneficial owners uh, of companies. Uh, about 1.6 million companies in six months signed up for it. They 98% said they had no problem identifying their owner. There were a couple that had some questions. Um, the registry is online. It is available to the public, so everyone can look at it and use it. Uh, there has not been problems. Uh, we would love to see that in the United States. Uh, the problem that we've faced is uh, folks raising concerns about the privacy of companies, about who's behind the company, and so uh, the bill has been fashioned to limit who has access. We've been fighting for greater access, and we couldn't agree with you more. Grady, do you want to comment on the, on the other uh, Certainly. Uh, some of the, the things about virtual currency, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, that sort of thing. I, I remember I had a discussion with Charles. It was several months ago, so sort of ancient history as it goes with Bitcoin. Um, and the discussion was sort of how much do we think or how much do we see uh, money laundering occurring through some of the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the, the biggest or largest one. Um, and at the time, I remember saying, uh, due to the nature of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, how uh, it, it's capped at a certain amount and uh, it's sort of controlled, I, I posited at the time that there's not a whole lot of large-scale money laundering going on through that. Like, you look at, there was a great New Yorker piece on, like, mirror trading and things like that, where they're doing 10 million, 100 million 
dollar transactions where it's massive amounts of money. So to do something like that in Bitcoin is difficult because number one, it would change the price of Bitcoin doing such a massive transaction like that. And secondly, it's, um, it would, uh, it, it's, it's not as liquid as you would like something to be when you're trying to move massive amounts of money. So at the time I said it's probably not happening. And then as we've seen recently, Bitcoin's skyrocketing. I think it's nearly $10,000 of Bitcoin now, where it was just a couple hundred dollars when we had this discussion previously. But I think there, there is some movement into cryptocurrencies now and, and, and virtual currencies. And uh, I, I think it's starting to pick up that some of the large scale transactions are starting to hit across some of those. Um, and that, that's obviously an altogether different problem set that uh, we're probably already behind again as well. You wanted to make a brief comment then before we move on? Or? Uh, just a comment on the British uh, legislation. It, it's actually a register of persons of significant control um, because uh, obviously persons of significant control over a company can uh, be sometimes in no way linked to the legal title uh, deed. So it's actually broader than simply beneficial uh, owners. And uh, I would love uh, such a system uh, to uh, such system to exist. It's worth remembering that some European countries are really light years ahead of the current murky situation in the United States. Uh, for instance, in uh, Norway, anyone can look at anyone's tax returns online. But the one condition is that the person whose tax returns can be, is being looked at gets the right to know who was looking at his. Uh, Anders Åslund from the Atlantic Council. First of all, let me congratulate Ben and Belinda on this uh, report that really looks excellent and Charles for running this uh, initiative. I think that this is enormously important. My, and particularly, I appreciate the quantifications, that you, you emphasize how much money it, uh, it is, and this, uh, we should really get more of these uh, numbers out. My question concerns how do we most e effectively attack it, and I think that Raymond had an excellent example with the pa uh, Patriot Act having cleaned out the shadow banking system, shell bank system in no time. Can't we do the same with, you mentioned, uh, Ben, uh, the, the three categories, law firms. It's absurd that law firms can take money at all. And the uh, real estate sector and the corporation uh, agencies. Can't we just say that normal bank regulation should apply to all financial transactions? Isn't that possible, international transactions? Isn't that possible to do? That would be one simple law that could be uh, adopted. What do you say generally on the pen? Thank you. Thank you. Rick, do you want to start with that, Raymond? Um, yes, let me touch on both the beneficial ownership question and the question of law firms. Um, uh, let's all be clear that the U.S. Treasury Department could, if it chose, uh, require all banks to know the beneficial ownership of every account in the bank down to a very low level if it chose to do so. The law that it uh, put into place has loopholes, and as I recall, only goes down 25% uh, 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 the level of shareholding. It does not require legislation. The Treasury Department can do this, um, uh, can impose those requirements on banks just like that if they, cho if they choose to do so. Law firms, in my view, of course, they should be... Uh, um, uh, obligated to be, uh, and I'm, I'm not persuaded by the argument of, uh, of attorney-client uh, privilege. 
Um, I keynoted a conference in Africa recently by the Pan-African Lawyers Union, and one of the questions circulating there was the adoption of an anti-corruption uh, um, commitment on the part of African lawyers. Um, and the question was, uh, what do we do if a corrupt person comes to us and asks for defense? Do we take, uh, do we take their money? Um, okay, everybody's entitled to a defense, um, um, but by the same token, um, uh, lawyers should, in the United States should be subjected to much more clear-cut um, uh, regulation. Very quickly, just uh, in the U.S. Patriot Act, just so folks know, uh, the requirements uh, for knowing your customer and doing some due diligence were actually broader. Um, for example, it did include the real estate industry. So when it passed, uh, it included the real estate industry. And then within six months, I think it was, maybe a year, they got an exemption, a temporary exemption that is now, when did the Patriot Act pass? 2002? So we, 2001? So it is a temporary exemption that is now going into its 17th year. Um, they could just remove the temporary exemption, and then they would be covered. So there are legal mechanisms for making this happen. It's more the political will. You want to make a brief comment? Yeah, it's a brief comment, which is, well, yes, of course we could. But like, and I would love nothing more to see these simple extend, uh, extensions. But you know, just walking through the Senate building yesterday, I must admit, I just felt incredible despondency and despair reading about what's happening in the US tax bill, which will make all of these problems uh, significantly worse. And watching a former party of government in such a state of oligarchic capture that it is unable to even act as a functioning government party. I mean, one thinks of like previous historical moments, like one is left thinking about the inability to reform in the Ottoman Empire, one's left with thinking of the inability to reform of the Mughal Empire, when political systems became completely hijacked by, uh, by uh, sort of elite groups and elite existing investments, with, which, were, which had no interest in uh, the sort of uh, greater benefits of the population or innovation and in reform. And uh, as one knows, like, Anybody who reads the newspaper knows that the future belongs to the countries that develop uh, AI or gene editing or electric vehicles at first. And watching the complete absence of any discussion of that in this uh, city, where we don't know where those industries can be concentrated, they can be concentrated anywhere, is, uh, really, is really depressing. Question over here. Yeah. Uh, hi, hi, good morning. My name is Frank Vogel. Um, a little comment and a question, a very tiny comment. Would you please try in future to add auction houses to your list of enablers? Yes. I keep on asking that at all these kinds of sessions, and nobody ever does, so that's my little plea. Okay, my question to, uh, to Ben and to Raymond Baker. Numbers. You've quoted the 300 billion figure, which comes from a US Treasury report, if I remember rightly, of about two years ago, and I have not seen, maybe I'm wrong, and I haven't seen an updated figure from them since. If I think about that number of 300 billion, and I think about where could the kleptocrats and the tax evaders and all the rest of it really deposit very large amounts of money safely, flexibly, and with liquidity, the US obviously is the very first place, the UK is next, and then we have some difficulties. Uh, in finding really who's third, perhaps France or Germany. The Swiss, after all, are intermediaries uh, to a large extent. So my question is, 
we have over a trillion dollars of illicit finance reported by global financial integrity. We only have one third of that reported for being in the US. Can't we get better numbers? Can't we really just create a table of where we think the illicit finance ultimately ends up? Not in Caymans and British Virgin Islands, but where does it really end up? Does half of it come to the US? Is it only a trillion? Is it more? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Because it seems to me these figures could be extremely powerful. Uh, an answer to that, which is, um, I was recently out of the Treasury in London talking about like the nature of this data and gathering this data, and they told me that um, there is a very large percentage of the cash flows in and out of the United Kingdom that they actually can't work out what it is. And it's not because it's illicit finance. It could be illicit finance. It's just it's incredibly difficult to make those numbers, and we just lack the integrated software uh, to do it. The obvious answer is you have to pay for it. And like when you see the IRS being destroyed, when you see the incredibly small amounts of manpower um, placed in these um, in the organisations that are supposed to tackle it, uh, well, yeah, of course it's only one figure. It's only two years old. One way, because this is how the system works here, is to try and uh, is to try and see if you can trigger some interest to get the lavish uh, American defence budget to dedicate uh, two minutes of its time into um, into calculating uh, those figures. You know, when they have such extensive research budgets. Well, one, actually, one of the nice... We're going to take one last question from our rival American Enterprise Institute. Uh, but actually, just in, in terms of what uh, Ben just mentioned, before we get to AEI, um, there's, there's a huge amount of interest at DOD in, uh, in this whole issue of um, illicit finance, illicit financial flows, and corruption, especially grand corruption in countries uh, such as Afghanistan that we've uh, tried to help, and vis-a-vis uh, -vis our ally, we're trying to fix Ukraine, and et cetera. So I don't know if there's anybody today here from DOD, but our events and our activities, we uh, intersect with uh, DOD personnel quite a bit, uh, and really across the spectrum of the, our government. The FBI, we you know, many, many people from there that we're in contact with. and um, So we're very, we're very uh, heartened by the the state of affairs with um, with our, our government. So, AEI. <laughs> you, we only need your name now. <laughs> Clay Fuller. Um, great report. I um, think this is very important work. Uh, broader questions sort of on uh, political will and national security and sort of framing for all of this. It's a question I frequently ask. Um, is there such a thing as an authoritarian regime that is not kleptocratic? Right. And is this kleptocracy uh, idea sort of the new communism, um, right? And so this, the question for national security, right, is where does democracy promotion fit in to all of this uh, discussion and work? Um, well, ISIS, primary purpose of that is not a kleptocracy. Primacy, prim, prim, you know, primary vision of that uh, authoritarian regime was sort of... Uh, Genocidal uh, was a sort of genocidal, millenarial uh, sort of caliphate, you know. And I don't, yeah, I don't think. I think like what what it, you know, there's obviously kleptocratic elements of it, but in terms of like what is its primary characteristic, I wouldn't call it primarily a kleptocracy. Don't, don't agree with that. Yeah. Ready? 
Uh, just to briefly address the political will and national security kind of thing, um, from my perspective, the political will is sort of an ebb and flow when it comes to national security, and certainly even for something like this, whether uh, we want to tackle the problem of uh, non-attributable companies and, and illicit cash flows and things like that. Uh, from my perspective, it's always kind of been find ways to do more with less and uh, uh, looking at ways we can we can use the data out there. I mean, there's there's incredibly powerful tools that are available to law enforcement that. Um, for instance, like trying to look at ways to uh, leverage some of the correspondent banking relationships where we can look at international flows a little more um, under sort of a big data lens and things like that and and uh, identifying some of that stuff. So for me, it's never about political will. It's, it's always about getting to the bottom of the problem and protecting national security with whatever tools we have. I'm under no illusions that you know, some new bill, some new great bill will give us these brilliant tools and we'll shut down global money laundering and close the door um, on, on the West to kleptocrats and illicit financing. So um, it's more about trying to do what we can with what we have. And if, if new things come online, it's, it's great. Most authoritarian regimes gravitate into uh, um, the use of illicit financial flows to send money uh, out. I've been in almost a hundred countries, the only one that I know of um, that didn't move, that the, the only one that comes to mind immediately is Singapore, which hasn't been uh, um, uh, particularly uh, uh, corrupt. But uh, certainly um, um, most authoritarian regimes gravitate toward uh, extensive flows of, of uh, uh, illicit money out. Um, Frank, our estimate of a trillion dollars a year is based only on the emerging market and developing countries, money uh, uh, going illicitly uh, uh, out. Um, and it, um, much of that um, is trade misinvoicing, um, which simply disappears into corporate uh, balance sheets and income statements, and you, you, you can't identify it very easily. Well, I'm afraid we have to stop here. <laughs> I apologize that there wasn't more time for Q&A, uh, but we are around, so by all means, um, you know, stick around. We'll be here for a while, and uh, thank you for coming. <laughs>